0: season. These are the 12 days of Christmas. There is Advent, and then there is Christmas, and then there's the Christmas season. And uh, we're still in the Christmas season. That's why the poinsettias are still here. That's why the the, the candle of the incarnation is still lighted. Now we're still celebrating. Amen? I mean, this is a good thing. So... uh This passage that we're looking at, which is familiar to you, um, is all sort of a part of this this season of the year in which we celebrate the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. And and just to kind of give you the punchline, uh, these magi, about whom we're going to read, uh, are not Jews. They're Gentiles. And that should be a very encouraging thing to you because my guess is that most of you are Gentiles. And what this is, is a little peephole through which you gaze into the great purpose of God to gather a people, not from one nation alone, but from every nation and race and tribe and tongue. And these Gentiles who come to bow before this infant king are tokens of that great purpose. And it's a purpose that we're all gathered up in. It's, you know, it's, it's, that's the story that we keep referring to. God's great purpose for all of human history. So now that you've got the punchline, here's the text, and, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll look at it together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews, rather unsettling Language for Herod, whose designation was king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, the the technical experts in the scriptures and the promises of scripture and the law and its application, those PhDs of the day, if you will. He inquired of them, Where was Christ, or where was the Christ, to be born? And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for this this little narrative, this little bit of the big, big story of what you're doing, and I, I do ask you that you'd be with us as we think about it. I, I, Lord, for some of us, there may be a need for some of the data to be properly arranged and sorted out. For others of us, there may be some encouragement here that is needed. For others of us, there may be some provocation that is needed to, to push us out from, from our comforts and our levels of comfort. Uh, Lord, whatever it is that we need, by your spirit, give us understanding and minister to our hearts and and incline our wills at those points where they need to be inclined so that we can find ourselves faithful by your grace, faithful to your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Nativity scenes have come under fire, as you know. Um, that's not really what I want to talk about. You know, you're, you're aware of the fact that nativity scenes have come under fire from, from outside the church. Um, I don't mean to be a troubler in Israel, but, but nativity scenes kind of need to come under fire from within the church. Here's why. Not because of the politics of the thing or anything else, but because because of the mistaken images and impressions that we have of nativity scenes and particularly the mistaken impressions we have of who happened to be there at the nativity at the birth of Jesus the stuff that is recorded in Luke 1 and 2 the promise that a, a child would be born and then and then the fulfillment of that promise uh, I think you know what I'm talking about. I mean, if you look at a nativity scene, whether one of the ones that you set up in your house or one of the ones that you may see around, typically you see several sorts of groups of people, right? At the center of the whole thing is the family, Mary and Joseph, and then the babe wrapped in the the clods and placed lying quietly in a manger, you know, in a little bed of straw. And then maybe the next group that you would find would be some sheep and some goats and, and you know, maybe some cows and, and you know, there's the, the livestock part of the thing. There's the, the, the animal part of the deal. And then maybe you see some shepherds. Are you with me? I mean, you have shepherds in the nativity scene. And then there's quite often there's this fourth group at the nativity, right? And they've, they've ridden in on camels. And usually there's three of them, and usually they have crowns on their heads, and usually they've got gifts. They're bearing gifts, and they, you know, they bow before the, the, the manger, and they open their gifts of gold, which obviously is a precious metal and associated with royalty. This is a little thing for you to think about and, and just sort of reflect on gold that is associated with royalty Frankincense, which is an incense, and and interestingly enough, the specific kind of incense that was used in the sacrificial system in Israel, isn't that interesting, an incense that was used for sacrifices. And then myrrh, which was used customarily in burials as a preservative, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Kind of a cool little peephole into what's coming, isn't it? A king who is a sacrifice, who tastes death, but who isn't conquered by it, who in fact conquers it himself. Well, what's wrong with this picture? This is not a question and answer time. What's wrong with this picture? Well, the thing that is wrong with this picture is the presence of the three characters in the manger. And I just, I just want to encourage you, if I may, um, that as Christians in the church, we've got to be very careful to make sure, and this may seem like a fairly inconsequential thing, but I, I would suggest to you as Christians that we have to be very, very careful to allow, or even more strongly than that, to pursue the scriptures as the final authority, the final word when it comes to all matters of faith and practice, and not allow these subtle little sort of mythical or mythological accretions to be added on to our understanding of the story of redemption, of the history of what God is doing. Here's the bottom line. The wise men were not there in the barn. They weren't there in the stable. So what I want to do this morning, if, if I can, is just, I hope, clarify for those of you who maybe need clarification, but I hope unpack a little bit of exactly what it is that's going on in Matthew chapter 2. And I'd like to do it through uh, through questions, asking four questions. First, when does this occur? When do these things happen? Who are these people, these Magi who come from the east. How did they get there? And what's the significance of their being there, which I've already alluded to? Four questions. When did it occur? Who are these people? How did they get there? And what does it all mean? First of all, when did this occur? Well, if you look at the text, there are a couple of hints uh, for us that suggest that this did happen uh, at some time after the nativity, after the birth of Jesus, after what is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke, verses 8 and 11, uh, in both of those verses, there is a word used, it's translated child in your text, in the ESV, in the NIV, uh, it is a word that is associated with a young child, but not an infant, it's the word that is used to describe what we would call perhaps a toddler, someone who has begun to walk, begun to uh, get into stuff, which we know Jesus never did. But That's the word that is used there. So, so Jesus at this point in Matthew chapter 2, just by looking at the word that is there in the text, is a bit older than an infant. He is a young child. And then verse 11, if you look at uh, verse 11 closely, there's reference made to a house. They went into the house. Who went into the house? These magi went into the house and they found Mary, his mother, and the child. And they fell down and worshipped him and opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So he's an older child, no longer in the barn, no longer in the stable, but in a house we don't have the details of the transition, exactly what happened in the in between time, but clearly some time, some significant time has elapsed, and here's Jesus, an older child with Mary and Joseph in a house in someone's house, perhaps the home of relatives, perhaps uh, who knows we we don't know, but in a clearly in a different location, and then verse sixteen. Herod, when he sees, we didn't read this, but, but if you look down at verse 16, Herod, when he sees that he has been tricked by the wise men, becomes furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. So Herod wanted to make sure that all of his bases were covered. That this alleged pretender to the throne was exterminated. And who was in view? Children under the age, male children under the age of two years of age. So we're we're some point down the road here as these wise men come. Now let me just make this observation as you think about verse 16. People tease me because I can't look at any passage of scripture without finding my way back to Genesis. And I would just encourage you to reflect on the fact that what you see in Matthew chapter 2 is an example of what was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. The coming of Jesus into the world is a troublesome thing. It was troublesome for Herod. And what you see in Matthew chapter 2 in that it is a fulfillment of what is prophesied in Genesis 3.15 is the seed of the serpent making war against the seed of the woman. The kings of this world seeking to extinguish and exterminate any threat to their power, to their control, to their authority. What you have here is a kind of a microcosmic glimpse of what is characteristic of the whole of human history. I've said this to you before, but I I say it to you again. As Christian people, you should not be surprised. Disappointed, yes. Brokenhearted, yes. But you should not be surprised when you slam into the world and the world resists you seeks to quiet you and silence you and even crush you. Jesus warned his disciples, if they kill me, they'll want to kill you. And the attempts to kill the seed of the woman began in the first years of his life when he, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, came into a world that belongs to him. He is the Lord of glory. It's not Herod's world. It's not the Emperor Caesar's world. It is not Barack Obama's world, and it wouldn't have been John McCain's world. I say these things to you all the time. The world belongs to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and when he comes into the world to lay claim to what belongs to him, he is opposed And if you identify with him and associate with him, contrary to so much of what you hear out there, don't expect blessing. Expect trouble. Expect opposition. Now, don't be the creators of it, don't be the architects of it, don't make it. Just know. That as you go out into the world, following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, as he seeks to reclaim what is rightfully his, you're going to be opposed, just as he was before, arguably, he even uttered a word or a sentence. That is the nature of human history. And Herod is a classic example of what has gone on across the centuries and what will continue across the centuries until Jesus the king comes back and establishes fully his rule and reign. So we're a little farther down the road, just a little bit more about Herod. Herod ruled from 37 B.C. approximately to 4 B.C. It seems that he probably died in about March of 4 B.C. So the likelihood is that Jesus was born in about 6 B.C., and that these events occur between 6 and 4 BC the time when Herod dies. So ballpark figure for these events 5 BC. Good round number. Good place to kind of fix your attention when you think about the fact that these things that are recorded here in Matthew chapter 2 are things that really did happen. They happened at a real place in real time involving real people. Okay, so that's That's kind of the when of it happening. Now, who were these wise men? And again, let let me just say, as in all things, it's so very important for us to submit our understanding to the teaching of Scripture. There is no indication anywhere in the text that they were kings. The, um, The stories that have sort of, you know, these kind of romantic little, Mythological stories that have grown up around these wise men are exactly that. The first, the first reference to kings and particularly to specific kings with particular names, Caspar, Melchiar, and Balthazar, comes from the 6th century. And it actually comes from a mosaic that you can still see in a church in Ravenna, Italy. But there isn't anything in the text that suggests that there were three kings from the Orient who followed this star. They were wise men. They were magi. What are magi? Well, they did have associations with kingly courts. The text tells us that they came from the east. They came in all probability from someplace along the Fertile Crescent. You know, the Tigris and Euphrates, Persia, Babylon, that whole part of the world, a part of the world that had dominated much of world history until uh, the time of the Romans and before them uh, the Greeks, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. That was a place of incredible power, a place from which armies marched. And and as we saw, as we were making our way through the minor prophets, it was the Babylonians and the Assyrians, these, these nations that caused so much trouble in Israel. That were the instruments of God's discipline and judgment. Well, that's where these wise men came from. Uh, these wise men, these magi, were associated with kingly courts, with the courts of the kings. They were, they were sort of like traveling diplomats, if you will. Um, they, they would have understood, they would have known things about other cultures because it was a, a part of their responsibility in representing kingly courts, it was a part of their responsibility to be able to communicate, to understand foreign cultures. Uh, that's the kind of thing that these guys would have been involved with. Uh, but they were more than that. They were more than just uh, diplomats. Their expertise was a kind of a multifaceted thing. They were, they were astronomer astrologer types. They did study the stars. Everybody did back in those days. Uh, They were engaged in in what you could call legitimate scientific inquiry, seeking to understand history, seeking to understand what it is that makes for history, seeking to understand the the motion of the bodies in the heavens. That's legitimate scientific inquiry. But there was a lot of other stuff that was sort of gathered up into it, astrology and uh, various uh, uh, sort of pseudo-scientific practices. So it was a fairly confused and corrupted sort of thing. Um, And then they also were involved in religious practices and employed magical incantations and that kind of thing. I mean, they were just, they were very interesting kinds of people who employed all of these things in foreign courts in the service of their kings, the kingdoms they represented. How many of them were there? Don't know. We don't have any idea. Could have been two, could have been... Five could have been ten. We don't have any idea. They certainly would have come with a large entourage. You wouldn't have been able to keep them hidden. They would have traveled several hundred miles from wherever it was in the Fertile Crescent they came from to Jerusalem. And when they came into town, people would have taken notice. They, They would have seen this group of foreigners. I mean, caravans went through this place all the time. But these are obviously significant People on some sort of a mission, and when they came to Jerusalem and they made their way to the king, that's an interesting thing. I mean, you don't just ride into town in Jerusalem and knock on the king's door and say, "We're here to worship the king of the Jews." I mean, you have to you have to be of substantial um, and compelling qualification to be able to get in to see the king. There was some reason they were able to get in to see the king, and they came. Then these diplomats with a large entourage made their way to the king and asked him the questions that they asked him. Who is this one? Where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? And it caused a tremendous disturbance, a disturbance for Herod and a, a disturbance in the whole town. So when did it happen and who were they? That's who they were, just sort of a general profile of them foreign diplomats, if you will, engaged in various practices and various sort of pseudoscience and science and all the rest. But the, but the how, how did they get there? That's the, that's the really, really interesting thing in this passage, I think. How did they get there? They make reference in the first couple of verses to having seen a star when it rose... And then later in the text, they follow this star to the place where Jesus lay. Now, if you look at the commentaries, there's just a ton of speculation about exactly what is going on with respect to this star. And let me suggest to you that they got there, they got there both by what I would call ordinary and extraordinary means. By both ordinary and extraordinary means. If you read the text itself, it looks like there's some sort, of, some sort of thing that happens in the heavens, some supernova or some unique star or some unique planetary configuration that explains what it is that they saw and why it is that they went where they went. And there is something to that. And we'll come to it in a second. But what I don't want us to overlook, in addition to acknowledging the extraordinary means, in addition to acknowledging and recognizing the supernatural dimension of this thing, I don't want us to overlook the ordinary part of it, the ordinary piece of the story. What am I talking about? Well, keep in mind the history of the people of God, the history of the nation Israel. And just think back from this point in time across a few centuries to the 7th and 8th centuries BC and down to the 6th century BC and then the 4th century BC and across those 4 centuries to the coming of Christ. What are the things that happened in those centuries prior to the coming of Christ into the world? Well, there was the threat through the major and minor prophets, the threat of judgment, Do you remember this, which would lead to exile and the exile would mean the people would be dislocated from their land, taken out of their land, removed from their land, and transplanted to a foreign place. And where was the foreign place to which they went? It was this very region. It was this very part of the world, the region of Persia and Babylonia, the Fertile Crescent, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and hundreds and tens of Of hundreds of people were transported from Jerusalem and relocated precisely to this place. What was God doing? I'll tell you what He was doing. He was sending missionaries to the nations, He was relocating His people away from their land and depositing them in the land of foreigners. And you remember Jeremiah 29, which to me is such a wonderful picture of the life of the church. This letter that God sends through Jeremiah to the exiles living in Babylon, where basically he says, you are where you are, not because Nebuchadnezzar has brought you there, but because I have brought you to that place. I, the sovereign Lord of history, have brought you to this place. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to cultivate those gardens. I want you to build houses. I want you to marry and give your sons and daughters in marriage. What is he asking them to do? He's asking them to engage in all of the practices, all of the habits, all of the patterns of behavior across the whole waterfront of life's activities. And then he says, I want you to seek the peace of the city to which I've called you. I don't want you to wall yourself up in little holy huddles. I want you to go out into the city and manifest, this is a rough paraphrase, but this is what God was telling them to do. I want you to manifest the difference that there is in being an Israelite. And I want you to do it out there in the city, in Babylon, this hated city, the capital city of this hated empire. I want you to do it out there in the city, praying for the city and seeking the peace and the well-being, the shalom of the city to which I've called you. And they did. And they did. They established places of of teaching, synagogues, and places where they would worship, where they would read the Scriptures and have the Scriptures unpacked and explained, where all of the promises of the Scriptures would have been enlarged upon by rabbis who would have pastored these little synagogues, if you will. But they would have gone out into the city. Now look, think about what happens when you go out into the city and you meet somebody, you're an Israelite, you meet somebody who's a Babylonian. Don't you, after a while, start talking about the things that are the most precious to you? Next year, Jerusalem. Don't you talk about those things? Don't you talk about a king who is promised to you? A king who is different from every other king who has ever ruled, ever reigned. Kings who are different from Nebuchadnezzar. Kings who are different from Ashurbanipal. A king who is not like Herod. Don't you talk about a king like the one described in Micah chapter 5? This passage that's cited in, uh, I'm sorry, Micah chapter 5. This passage that's cited in Matthew chapter 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, a king, one who is orig- whose origin is from of old, from the ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. If you're living in Babylon at the time of the exile, you talk about the things that are most important to you and the most precious to you. And look, folks, because the God of heaven and earth was there ahead of you, because he was there before you were there as an Israelite living in Babylon, and because he is the one who plows up the soil of human hearts, because he is the one who is out there in the world readying the Gentiles, preparing the Gentiles to hear the promise of this great king who is going to come, who will be different. He will not exploit people. He will not dominate people, but he will shepherd people and he will rule them in peace with the full blessings of shalom. God is the one who is out there readying the hearts of the Gentiles to hear this promise so that when the promise comes, That Babylonian neighbor of yours says, tell me more. Tell me more. And the word begins to get around. Does everybody embrace it and receive it? No, of course not. Remember, we're in a conflict. Herod wants to kill the incarnate son of God, the king of kings. There are people who didn't like it. They opposed it. But out there in the streets of Babylon, as Jews prayed for Babylon, and sought the peace of the city and the well-being of the city, they would talk about the things that were most important to them. And because God was out there ahead of them, readying hearts and preparing hearts, when those promises were spoken, they landed like seeds in soil prepared and readied so that when the seeds land, they begin to germinate. Where did these wise men come from? Why did they come to this particular place? In part, and this is sort of a theme that I've tried to encourage in my own heart and among us. In part, they came because ordinary people saying and doing ordinary things in the ordinary affairs of life were used by God to spread the gospel of hope, the promise of a coming king. Now there's the extraordinary side of this. And again, people make all kinds of, uh, offer all kinds of answers to it. It's interesting that there was a particular planetary configuration On May 27th, 7 BC, that involved Jupiter and Saturn and the constellation Pisces, perfect timing for some people who were experts in looking at the movement of stars to look up into the heavens and see Jupiter, which was considered the principal star, the star associated with deity, and Saturn, the star that was associated with the Jews, and Pisces, the constellation that was associated with the promised land. You look up into the heavens, you see Saturn and Jupiter and Pisces all in a particular configuration, and bingo! There's the alignment of bodies that captures the attention of these wise men. But don't lose sight of the fact that promises had been made of a coming king for centuries and those promises made their way to Babylon and ordinary people doing ordinary things in the midst of all of that doing spoke these promises. And those promises were heard. And these wise men were among those who sought out this promised king that they might worship him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords and offer their gifts to him. Who were they? We don't know their names. We just know that they came. And they came because of ordinary things and certainly because of extraordinary things. And that leads us to the final question. What's the implication of all of this? Or what are the implications of all of this? I think, as I've suggested, that we're at the very same place as the Jews who were deported from their land living in Babylon. We leave this place, we go out into the world. And we go out into the world in the same way that those Jews went out into the world. We go out into a world that is filled with people who are hostile. Hostile to the announcement that a king is coming. And he is the rightful lord of the whole world. We go out into a world to announce the coming of a king who is going to return. Who is going to come back. And when he comes back to complete what he has begun, he will enter into judgment with the nations And he will enter into judgment with individuals. And individuals and nations will be brought before this great and glorious king. And individuals and nations will be called upon to give an accounting for their individual lives and their corporate lives. We go out into a world to make an announcement that that king who is coming, whose word can be resisted, is also one who has come previously. Who has come into the world, not as a judge, but as one who comes to save, to free people, to rescue people, to deliver people from sin and death, and to deliver them from the ruthless and oppressive kings that are so characteristic of all of human history. And we go out into the world in the same way that those Jews went into Babylon. And we talk about these things with people trusting and believing that God is out there ahead of us. God is out there in advance of any conversation you ever have with any neighbor. He's sovereign. He's free. He works where he wants and when he wants and how he wants. But he is out there, and he is working. And as we think kind of down the next few weeks and months to that building that's being built, and if you haven't been by it to see the cinder block walls and the steel girders going up, as we think our way across these next weeks and think about that building, remember, we're surrounded by people. And God is out there working in the hearts of people. And God simply commissions us as as ordinary people who do ordinary things in the midst of ordinary space and time. God simply asks us to be out there in the world speaking about the things that are the most important to us. Speaking about the King who has already come who has come to save, to deliver, to set people free. The king who is going to come again and who when he comes again will free the whole creation from its bondage, will liberate people from their oppressions, who will inaugurate his rule and reign by bringing in the new heaven and the new earth, a thing that is inconceivable to our minds and to our hearts. We we go out into the world And we simply talk about these things believing and knowing that God is out there ahead of us, working in people's hearts, preparing people's hearts, tilling up the soil of people's hearts so that when this gospel that we speak about lands, there will be occasions when the gospel lands like seeds in soil that has been readied by God, which will then germinate and take root and begin to bear fruit. So who were these guys? They were missionaries, or they were the recipients of those who were missionaries who brought these great promises to them. And who were we? Missionaries who go out into the world, into our Babylon, to speak and to speak about these promises, trusting that God will take our words and plant them in people's hearts and bear fruit through them. This is how the church is built and strengthened. It's built through us in that way. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you take ordinary folks, ordinary folks like us, who do ordinary things. And in the midst of doing our ordinary things, I pray that you would give us courage and give us grace to speak about these great promises, about this great king who has come and who is going to come again. Lord, we bow before you to acknowledge that there is not a person in this room able to change the heart of another. There is not a program that we can establish that can build your church. There is not a class or a sermon or a conversation that can cause the eyes of the blind to be opened or the ears of the deaf to be unstopped. You alone, O Lord, can do that. And we ask you that you would. Humbly we bow before you and call upon you and ask you that you would do what you alone can do in this Babylon where you have called us to live. But, O Lord, stir us up and give us courage and grace to do what we alone can do, And that is to speak of the things that are the most important to us. Give us grace to tell these promises and to tell this hope to those around us. And we will wait upon you and watch you as you build your church. For the praise of the name of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let me have you stand together and we'll sing number 226 as with gladness men of old number 226